We're beginning in October, we're going to begin a series focused on God's provision for us. And at one point, I was thinking about keeping this passage, these two verses, uh, in that time frame. But I felt like, no, this really, we need to, to look at this in connection with work. Because this is the great work that God has called us to as the church. To go and make disciples. And so, such a foundational verse for the church, much like John 3.16. I don't know how many of you have gone through the the trouble in your life of memorizing it, though. I, I know I hadn't for a long period of time. But let's go ahead and let's start the process of committing the, these verses to our memory. And, and if you feel like it's long, just know I really wanted to include uh, verse 18 too. But I said no. You know, but if you want to, I encourage you to add 18 to your memorization this week. You feel so led because it's an important part of this as well. But I felt like, much like in some other verses where uh, the verse at hand includes the ideas. And, and so we'll see that here as well. But let's go ahead and, and let's say Matthew 28, 19, and 20 together a few times. All right, Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. All right, let's take away some of those words and let's say this together and fill in the blanks. All right. Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Alright. Hopefully it's starting to starting to sink in and doesn't feel like it's so big and so so much to learn. Let's say this one more time. Fill in all these blanks. Oh my. Here we go. Ready? Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Overwhelmingly, the, the call of the church is the call of disciples. To, for us to be disciples and also to be about the, the business of making disciples. The work of building and creating disciples. In fact, uh, this, this verse where it begins in uh, verse 19 there, when it says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. It, it literally reads, if you were to translate it in English, Go therefore and, and disciple the nations. Uh, to disciple means to to make and to bring along and to create. And it's the idea of 
doing something that causes another person to become. To, to be doing the work that, that brings them out to being disciples. Now, uh, one of the things that we need to look at as we look at this verse, and like I said, I really wanted to include 18 into this as well. But we see that word, therefore. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. Go and disciple the nations. I mean, just picture the time frame of what we're talking about. Jesus has risen from the dead. He told His disciples, as we take the, the, the um, narrative from Matthew, He told His disciples that He would meet them in Galilee, and so they, they went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had designated, and when they saw Him, they worshipped Him, but some of them were doubtful, and Jesus came and He spoke to them, and He, he told them what He wanted them to do. Go therefore and make disciples to disciple the nations. Now what's the therefore? Why is He telling them to go and do this? Well, in verse 18 we see, He says that, And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to Me in heaven and on earth. Jesus has, has died on the cross and risen again. And because of that action, He says to them, All authority has been given to Me. My Father has given me authority, all authority in heaven and on earth. I am over all things. Now think of that. Just think of that. Here he is talking to 11 men. Maybe some women and some others that we don't know about, but predominantly the picture that Matthew gives us is the 11 there. And he is telling them, all authority has been given to me. And yet Rome is so powerful. Rome controls the world that they know. And yet Jesus says to them, all authority has been given to Me. What does He want us to do because He has authority? Because He has authority, He now commands His disciples. He directs them what should they be doing. Go therefore. All authority has been given to Me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore! Because I have the authority in the whole world, because I have all the authority in heaven, go therefore and disciple the nations. The idea that only Jewish people could become Christians is, it, is refuted even by Jesus before He leaves. Before He dis ascends to heaven and the Holy Spirit comes on the disciples. Before Peter sees a, a, a sheet laid down with all these unclean animals for him to get up and to kill and to eat. And so he is told through this that he shouldn't consider people to be unclean. And so he should go to the Gentiles. And Paul, even before Paul has any understanding that God has called him specifically to be the apostle to the nations. That's what the, the word when Paul says, I'm the apostle to the Gentiles. Well, it, it's the same word as we see here in, ver, in, in verse 19, the nations. He is the, the apostle to the nations, to the Gentiles. Even before all that, Jesus was telling them what their mission, what the scope of it was, that they were to go and disciple the nations. And our translation of to make disciples of the nations kind of makes it sound like, well, as long as we get a few of them, you know, as long as we get a percentage of the nation, 
we're good. But, but what he's saying here when he says to disciple the nations, it's not just to make some disciples out of the members of those nations, but that the entire world, all of the nations of the world, should hear the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They should have the church making them be disciples, or at least working toward those ends to disciple them, to reach out to them. We, we, we break up discipleship sometimes in the church as evangelism and then discipleship, but evangelism, the sharing of the good news, is a part of discipleship. And what he is telling them here is that the whole world is his. He is in charge. As Psalm 24 tells us, uh, the earth is the Lord and all it contains the world and all who dwell in it? Well, now it's Jesus's, And Jesus is saying that His disciples need to go and share with the world and make more disciples out of the entire, all of the nations, the entire world. Because the world is the Lord's. And the world needs to know it. He has the authority. Not Rome. He has the authority, not the United Nations. Not the President. Not Russia, not China. But what does the world think? The world thinks it has authority, right? The world, in all of its ways, the political world, the social world, you can't tell me how to live my life. Don't judge me. Everybody gets to decide what their own truth is. That is the way the world thinks. That's the way the world lives. And the world needs to know it's not in charge of itself. The world needs to know that Jesus has authority over it and it belongs to Him. But the, the problem is, is that the world is in rebellion against Him. The world does not acknowledge His authority over him, them. And so He is sending out His disciples that we might share with the world His authority. That's why He is telling us to go and make disciples of all the nations. That every place, every tongue, every nation should hear the Gospel message that Jesus Christ is Lord. That He died on the cross for our sins and then He rose again. And that He is in charge. And, and our purpose in life is to live as He would have us to live. To obey Him. To worship Him. And, and so we are called to go to make disciples of all the nations. And I, I, I wonder sometimes, you know, notice He says, go therefore make disciples of all the nations. Baptizing them. Well, Baptizing to us is, is the beginning of belonging to the people of God, right? We understand how we baptize somebody. We understand, oh, you know, somebody proclaims faith in Jesus, now we baptize them. The baptism is the acknowledgement of our uh, believing in and following Jesus. And then after we baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we know that to teach them, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Well, we're pretty good at, at teaching. That's, that's the primary focus of our worship and our discipleship. You know, other, other denominations, the, the pulpit might be off to the corner or the side, and right in the middle of the, the, the platform is an altar where they perform the Lord's Supper. In fact, I remember a, a Presbyterian pastor talking about in his church where he grew up, the table was bolted to the floor. You could not move it if you wanted to. When they did 
Easter pageants and Christmas plays, they had to work around that table. That was how focused and central the Lord's Supper was to them because they view it as a sacrament, a, a physical avenue of the spiritual grace given to us. Well, we focus a little differently. Our altar is on wheels and we put it away when we don't need it and we bring it out when we do. But I've been in Baptist churches where it took a lot of work and you might get a hernia trying to move the podium or the, the, uh, the pulpit, right? Even though we don't have a massive pulpit that we can't move or get around, in our way of believing, in our practice of faith, teaching is central. The majority of our worship is given to the teaching of Scripture. Prior to that, we have Bible studies or Sunday school classes where we come together to teach and to learn. On top of that, we have Bible studies through the week. What's the point of those? To teach and to learn. We understand teaching them to observe all that He has commanded us. What, what I find struggle is what why didn't Jesus tell us a little bit more about how to go about making those disciples? He just kind of assumed we'd be able to do it. Disciple the nations, baptizing them. How do we, how do, we do that? When I think about nations, that word nation, we translate it sometimes as Gentile. The word nations means a, a race or a people group. It can be sometimes translated to incorporate the entire heathen world. An interesting idea about nations, this word that is ethnos, where we get ethnicity, ethnos from Greek, is people who are joined together by practicing similar customs or holding a common culture. So, so consider this, that America is a nation, and yet not a nation with a shared heritage, necessarily. We didn't all just uh, live here and so created a nation. We joined together as a nation. And, and people become part of America by joining it and sharing with its customs and its culture. And we, we add to that culture and we share it and we uh, mix it up. Although nowadays you're not allowed to do that, apparently. But there's a shared idea. There's a shared culture that we have and shared customs that we have that we keep in common that make us different than, say, our, at least for me, my cousins overseas in England where they've lost their queen and so they're bringing everything to a standstill as they mourn her and as they have to accept the fact that her son is now their king. And, and we can mourn her because we mourn all people and, and she seemed to be a good person who lived her life well in service to her country and did uh, as well as anybody could in that realm. But we didn't lose a queen. See, we don't share that culture. The English do. They share her whether they're... And there are some people in England who don't like her. They don't like the monarchy, and they spend a lot of time saying, down with the monarchy, let's abolish the monarchy. Well, we don't do that. Why? Because we did it 200 years ago. We got rid of the monarchy for ourselves, so we don't sit around saying, let's abolish the monarchy. But the people in England share a culture, even those that don't like portions of it, that want to get rid of those portions, by proclaiming abolish the monarchy, they acknowledge their 
under the monarchy. They're a part of that culture. And so the, the world, when you think of the world as being the nations, all these different nations that we have, they share something together that unites them and makes them different. All right? Even though you have cities, say, on the border of Texas that maybe for all, uh, you know, as we look at them, they might look a lot like the cities just across the border in Mexico. In fact, we were at a dinner last night and a speaker was there from El Paso talking about his city and how the border just splits the city up and it's two cities, but really just one because there just happens to be a national border going through it. And yet, the people on one side don't identify with the people on the other side. They are split culturally. They are part of a separate nation because they are united in similar customs or common culture to their own nation. And all these nations that we have, when we think about them, they're really kind of arbitrary. They're like kids playing who decide, you know, we're the cops, you're the robbers. Or when I was a kid, you had the cowboys and the Indians. You know, you might play... Uh, you're the north, we're the south, or you're the south, we're the north, you know? And, and you divide yourselves up into teams to, to fight imaginary battles and to play. Well, you know, in a certain extent, from God's perspective, that's all we're doing. We're creating all these different nations, and in fact, he, He's the one that first began it with the Tower of Babel when He split us up by language. But these nations, they're, they're just like dust on a scale as far as he's concerned. All the power that they have, they're very small. And all the importance, you know, they're, they haven't always existed and they won't always exist. There was a day when America, the United States of America, did not exist. There will be a day when the United States of America does not exist. Even though England has had a, a very long history, the nation as it exists today is not the same nation that it once was. These things don't last. And yet we put so much focus and effort into them. What we can say about the nations, though, is that it is united by a shared custom. And I would say that the one primary shared custom that all the nations, when Jesus told His disciples to go and disciple all the nations, the one shared custom is that they are against God. If you want to boil down one thing that all the nations of the world today share in common, it is that we are in rebellion against God as the world. We want to live life our way. We don't want to live it Jesus' way. We want to do things our way. We don't want to do them His way. We know this because, honestly, as the world works... Uh, a nation that tried to live out Jesus' teachings? How could such a nation exist as a nation state? To love its enemies? To bless those that curses it? To, to, to allow if it's been slapped on one cheek to slap me on the other? That if somebody says, give me your coat, you give them your tunic as well? What nation could survive in such a way? And yet that is what God calls us to. The world as it works is completely contrary to Jesus, who is the one with all authority. And, and this is the thing that Jesus is calling us to do. Go and make disciples of all the nations. In essence, go to those who are completely against me and make them disciples. And so when I think of in the question of how does this work, how do we make disciples? So that we can get to the point where we baptize them. So we can get to the point where we continue to teach them. Well, discipleship 
begins with, and as I think about you know Romans, uh, how can they hear unless they have somebody to speak to them, to teach them? How can they speak to them unless they go? You know, how can they go unless they are sent? How did disciples get made? How do we go about the process of making disciples? I think it's tied up there in verse nine or in verse twenty, actually, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. We have to teach the world what Jesus has said. But you have to remember that it's a world that is against Him. Doesn't acknowledge His authority. So what happens when you go to people who don't acknowledge your authority and you try to teach them to do God's things? What happens when you have a group of people who will not listen to an authority and then somebody goes and tries to tell them what that authority wants them to do? As we see in the news quite often, what happens? Conflict, right? Disagreements. Anger. Sometimes violence. I, I hate to say it, but discipleship begins by confrontation. In, in fact, you could say that discipleship is a long process of confrontation. Not necessarily physical blows, but to be made into somebody who's going to follow Jesus requires somebody to come and tell you you're walking the wrong way. And who here likes to be told they're doing something wrong? You know? We don't. We like to be told we're doing it right. We don't like to be told we're doing something wrong. And yet, the essence of discipleship and the gospel message is, is you're doing it wrong. You're living wrong. You're walking the wrong way. You need to walk in Jesus' way. That's a confrontation. The, the discipleship begins by confrontation. It needs somebody who will come and get in my way and tell me that I am living for myself and I need to live for Jesus. I need somebody to confront me with a mirror that shows me my sin. And, and oftentimes, to grow in Christ requires confrontation. You know, on a regular basis, when I'm talking about spiritual things and somebody will say something that is an idea in their mind, and I'm like, I don't know about that. One of the discussions I have internally sometimes when I'm talking to people is if they say something that sounds like error to me, and it sounds wrong, is it big enough? Is it bad enough that I need to deal with it right now? Is it big enough and bad enough that I can't just let them continue thinking this little thing? Does this require confrontation? Because that's what discipleship is in many ways. It's confronting us and, and, and challenging us and calling us to walk with Jesus. And it's not always a pleasant, fun experience. I can remember early on as a believer, uh, a, a Bible study leader of mine came out and, and he wanted to, to throw the ball around, you know, just play, uh, have a catch. And unfortunately, I didn't think to bring my ball glove to college with me. I, I didn't think I needed it. And he had two mitts, and they were designed for 97%, or excuse me, 93% of the world, and I happened to belong to the other 7%. So I was already annoyed trying to use a right-handed glove and do I try to catch with my right hand and throw with my left? Do I just you know, do the best I can to throw back with my right? And as I'm already in this uncomfortable position, he's trying to talk to me about certain things and, and, and things I'd never really given much thought to, like the, the biblical canon. How did we get these books in the Bible? Well, I didn't know anything about that, really. The Bible doesn't say it. 
And I was putting forth some ideas about how, well, God uh, oversaw the writing of it. I am sure we can trust him to oversee the compiling of it. And he started challenging some of my ideas and conceptions. I don't know about you. I don't like people challenging my ideas, my conceptions. I'm thinking them. They got to be pretty good, right? Isn't that the way it works? And it was annoying and it was frustrating and I got angry. And weeks later, I realized after I did some investigation how I was wrong and he was right. And I back to him and I thanked him and you know that was such a beneficial time for me because now when I say something to somebody and they get angry with me I can just kind of go like hey I, I've been in your shoes that's all right I know I understand no skin off my nose I've told you what I needed to tell you you either come around to it or you don't you know and I've had times where people a week a month sometimes even a year later will come and say you know what I didn't like hearing it but you're right And I would like to say, no, I'm not right. I merely was telling them something that God has said that is right. And I had to come around to it myself. And that's that's generally what discipleship is. You have grown in your faith, and you're helping somebody else grow in their faith, and they are challenged by the same things that probably challenged you. And discipleship, though, it begins with confrontation. We have to expect that if you go out into the world to tell them about Jesus Christ, they're not going to like it that they are going to reject the message, and that there is going to be some confrontation. We saw this with Jesus. John tells us that the light came into the world, and he came to his own, and his own rejected him. That the darkness doesn't like the light. The darkness rejects the light. Well, if that's the way they treated Jesus, we should expect they're going to treat us the same way. And And that's what Jesus is getting at here, that there is going to be some confrontation and that's why he's encouraging them that he has the authority he is sending them out to do a job and oh by the way lo i am with you always even to the end of the age he says you know what as i'm leading you out as i'm sending you out there and as you're going to be uh doing this and experiencing this confrontation it's going to get ugly and it's going to get nasty and some of you may not live through it but don't be afraid I'm with you. I'm with you every step. Even to the end of the age. And I think sometimes I personally focus on the even end of the age language. But how about just, you know, it doesn't have to be the end of the age. It doesn't have to be the hard times. Even in the small times, even in the calm times, He is with us always. And that's what He wants us to know, that as we go into discipleship and as we work together to try to encourage one another in growth, and, actually, and as we go out, that He is with us. He tells us, and, and as we go making disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, that we're going to experience some of that confrontation. But over time, what happens is that people uh, come around to it. Somebody tells you that you're wrong and you don't like it, but maybe after a while you come around to the fact that, you know, they're right. I am wrong. I'm living wrong. I see the error in my way. I see the problems in how I live. And I see that there's a better way in Jesus. And what happens eventually is, as he tells them, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Baptism isn't the beginning of discipleship. Baptism is a marker, you might say, in your life. But discipleship begins earlier. 
as we're being evangelized, as we're being brought to know Jesus, as we're being challenged in our lives and brought to the place where we recognize we're, we're sinners. That's discipleship too. But the turning point when disciples are really made, when you become not just somebody who's being discipled, but when you become a disciple. When he says to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the name isn't just um, what we call one another. The name of God represents His character, His fame, His reputation. It's a revelation of of His very being. And so to be baptized into His name in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And I love the fact that the NAS makes name singular and yet Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three. Reminding us of the three in one. He didn't add name of, name of, name of. But no, name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The idea of being baptized into the name of God. It means having our identity in Him. When I think of the world in conflict with God and and we are sent out to, to share the message and we are going to confront the world and we might experience some conflict because of that. People who are uh, against God, who eventually are reconciled to God, what happens in their life? That they would get to the point where they're going to be baptized in His name. That they're going to recognize themselves as being part of His people and recognize His sovereignty over them. Is that something has changed in their life. It's similar to a person who comes to the United States They're from another country. They owe that other country allegiance. But the time comes when they become what we call a naturalized citizen. And they make an oath that I never took. I never had to make an oath. I was born in it. But they came from another nation. I never had allegiance to another nation. But they came from another nation. And they have to take an oath that says... I am no longer going to have allegiance to that nation. Now I pledge allegiance to America, to the United States of America. That is a change. And that is the change that happens when a person goes from being in in disobedience and rebellion against God to accepting Jesus Christ. So disciples are made when our allegiance is turned to Jesus. That that is is what baptism signifies. When a person comes and says, I want to be baptized, what they're saying is, they're not saying, I want to align myself with Jesus. What they're saying is, I have already aligned myself with Jesus. My allegiance is in Him, not myself and not the world, and I want to proclaim it. I would say in the same way that a person who has come to America from another country and who goes through the steps to obtain uh, citizenship in America... They made the mental decision and they made the heart decision long time before they ever went to a courthouse and took an oath. The decision happened earlier. The oath is merely the ceremonial following through of what has already happened in the heart. The same is true in baptism. We baptize, this is why we baptize believers. When we talk about believer's baptism, we're not baptizing you in the hopes that you become a believer. We're not baptizing you in some way to seal you so that you will become a believer. When we baptize you, we're saying we acknowledge you're already a believer. 
and you're proclaiming your faith in Jesus Christ and you want the world to see it and your way of acknowledging your identity in Christ is by baptism. And oh, by the way, you can't move our baptistry. That's where we put it. Some churches, the baptistry font is at the door and that there's, there's theological reasoning for that because baptism is done for infants and it shows that they have entered into the people of God. We say, no, you can come in here, you don't have to be baptized. And, but we hold baptism to be of such importance, of such value. We have taken up space, and that space is completely useless for any other reason. That is the importance we put on believers' baptism. Not just that, it's fairly large so that you can get your whole body into it. Because baptize means to dip, to dunk. We don't have just a little font where we sprinkle. On theological reasons for that, I understand. But as Baptists, we dunk. It's the whole body buried in the water like Jesus was buried in the tomb and brought out again to new life. That is an acknowledgement that your allegiance has changed. That happens after you're saved. That is what we are doing. And that is, that is, when, that is what the making disciples in verse uh, 19 happens. Is it, it's the confrontation with the world and the way people look and live until we bring them to a place where their allegiance is no longer for themselves, but for Jesus. It is no longer what I want, but Your will. Now I'm going to follow Jesus, they say. And then they become disciples. Now what happens when you get baptized? Do we just keep you under and let you go home to the Lord? No. Do we bring you out and say, well, that's it, you're good? See you Christmas and Easter and we'll hold your funeral? No. No, that's not it. We baptize them and then it's not over. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. That, that word observe... It means not just, you know, I, I think of that sometimes as, you know, teaching them to observe. And, and we can observe things, right? Like if there's a squirrel running around in the backyard, I can observe it. That's not what he's talking about. He doesn't talk about just look at him and say, yeah, that's what Jesus commanded us all, right? I see it right there, yeah. No, to observe means to keep, to watch over, to manage even. To observe means to, to keep intact. To maintain it. In other words, we need to make sure we do it. To observe His commandments means that it's not enough for one generation to know them. we got to teach them to the next generation so that we keep them intact. So that the next generation can know. So that the next generation can know. The next generation can know. We need to keep them intact. And how do we do that? Just by talking about them? No by enacting them in our lives. By living them out. In fact, discipleship is marked by living out Jesus' commands. As we live it and as we teach it, then the next generation or those who don't know those things will, will grow in it. The problems come when we don't live it out, but we teach it. Then we become hypocrites and they see us and they say, well, you're just a hypocrite. You, you speak a good game, but you're not living it. 
And I think it would equally be as bad if we lived it and never spoke it. Not everything is caught. Some things have to be taught. And it has to be reinforced. Why do I do this? Well, because Jesus commanded it. Because it's something that Jesus told His people to do. And and we need to live out His commandments. And show each other how to live them out and help one another live them out and help the next generation figure it out so that they can keep it going and keep it going and keep it going. That's what He calls us to do. Not everybody, when He says go and, and make disciples, not everybody is called to go to another land or another city. Right? There are some people that go and make disciples. It means go somewhere else. But this, this command to go means get with it. Get active. Make disciples of all the nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And, and we have to live it out to be able to teach it. And this is something all of us are supposed to be about. Sharing the the, the Gospel with people. Wherever we are, are we living in such a way that they can see Jesus in us? Are we speaking to them in such a way? Are we coming alongside somebody and they're going their own way and when we have the opportunity and when we see the possibility, we can say, you know, you're you're living for yourself in that and it's just going to hurt you. You're living for yourself in that. I mean, I'm not suggesting that while you're at work or you know, Seeing somebody at the checkout counter, you say, did you realize you're in rebellion against Jesus and you need to turn around? That's in essence what we're saying, but maybe it's not the best approach. But to realize, how can I focus and show this person, you're living this way and and it's not God's design for you. And you need to start learning about God's ways. Inviting them to Bible study, inviting them to church, just inviting maybe to, to visit with you once a week or something, that you could share with them a little bit of what God has called us to do. But if we're not living it out, they're going to recognize that real quick. And one of the greatest ways we live out Jesus' commandments, that we observe it, we maintain it, is to obey this great commission. It's a commandment too, that we would go. It's in the imperative mood. Do it. We've got to live it out. This is the great work He has given us as a body together to make disciples. And you're going to have people come into your life that aren't going to want to follow Jesus. Or they're, they're going to dabble with it, but then they're going to fall away. That, that is not on you. But if we're not even trying to make them, if we're not even sharing with them what Jesus has told us and commanded us, if, if we're so afraid of the confrontations that will come that we just let it lie, that's on us. That's on us. Disciples, the, the, the making of, the being one of, the building up of disciples is the great work that Jesus has done, has given us to do that God has prepared beforehand for us to walk in. And I want to invite you and encourage you today to consider how are we making disciples? You might recall uh, the whole point and purpose of this year-long focus on Scripture memorization is in part my desire that that I would be making disciples and building you up as disciples and helping you to walk with God 
And this was just one little way to work on that. That we would be focused on our discipleship efforts in our lives. But how can we, how can we be working to make disciples in our communities? In Azel, around the Eagle Mountain Lake, in Saginaw, in Fort Worth, and Lake Worth. How are we a part of making disciples here? People that would come to recognize they're, they're in rebellion against God and, and, and embracing that confrontation that they might change their allegiance to Jesus Christ. Each one of you here today, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, at some point, you had to change your allegiance from the world and your own self to Him. You've walked that path. Consider how you can help others walk that path too. And to grow in their knowledge of Jesus. That's what Jesus has called us to in the Great Commission. Let's say this one more time and then we'll close in a word of prayer. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we... I feel like, Lord, that last bit's where we need to remember and begin with. You are with us. You are with us always. Even to the end of the age. Even to the times when they will drag us into the synagogues and in front of courts. We haven't experienced that, Lord. But You are with us even today before we ever get there. Help us to remember as we are out and about as we are going through our lives that you are with us as we are confronted with a world that is in rebellion against you lord help us to remember that your authority is over all and you're with us and you've called us and commanded us to make disciples and we pray lord that we would look around us and see the need for people to believe in jesus that we would be looking for what small way what real, tangible way today can I help this person grow in their knowledge of Jesus? How can I disciple them to be confronting them at times, challenging their thoughts and their, their preconceived notions? How can I help them grow and come to a place where they believe in Jesus? Lord, I pray that this would be a desire on all of our hearts. We pray that You would help us to be a people who make disciples and help them to grow. Not just to, to win them and forget about them, but Lord, to nurture them in life so that a generation from now, two generations from now, when most of us or all of us are gone, Lord, that there would still be believers who are following Jesus Christ, who are keeping His commandments because we passed them on. Lord, we pray that it would be our desire in our hearts to be disciple-makers. We ask this today in Jesus' name. Amen.
as we come to our 